So this morning, um, we have the privilege of another one of our elders coming to speak, Scott Demarest. So we're so excited that he's here. Um, before he comes up, we're going to talk about our Wellspring disciplines. So let me open up in a word of prayer, and then we can get started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the clouds and the rain. Thank you for um, bringing us all here safely this morning and um, for even providing Wellspring, this ministry where we can come and gather around your word and hear what you would have to say to us about how we can um, take care of our hearts and love those in our homes and serve the church body better. And Father, I just pray this morning that um, as Scott comes to teach, that we would do so um, with hearts that have a desire to learn and to grow, um, because we know we need to, we always need to. And God, I just pray that um, this morning is a time of, of um, conviction and encouragement, and for our discussion groups, that the conversation there is honoring to you. Thank you for preparing Scott to come today. Um, and and I, as always, we pray for the ladies over in Wellspring Kids, that you would sustain them and give them a lot of energy this morning in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to talk about our disciplines. So my favorite subject in school when I was a kid was history. I was not a very good student, but history I always got good grades because I enjoyed it. Um, so um, I have like my regular podcast playlist. I have like three or four history podcasts that every morning I wake up and I'm like, oh, there's going to be a new podcast. And it kind of helps me get moving. So, um, so today we're going to have a little history lesson in our discipline discussion. Um, so Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703 in Connecticut. And he is considered to be one of the greatest Puritan theologians and influencers of the Great Awakening in the United States. Um, he graduated from Yale. He was a pastor and father to 11 children. So he was busy. Um, in 1741, he preached his now famous sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but when he was just 19, 19 years old, thinking about what I was doing when I was 19, um, he wrote 70 resolutions or 70 commitments. Um, and these weren't just resolutions like a lot of people do nowadays for, you know, I'm going to lose 10 pounds this year. Or I'm going to, I don't know go on a juice cleanse for a week or whatever. Um, but they weren't just for his the next day or even the next year, but they were resolutions for his life. Um, and they're really interesting to look at. If you're ever interested, I'm not going to read all 70 today because we don't have time, but if you ever just want to Google it, Ed, Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions, they're really interesting to look through. Um, but they can serve as a wonderful example for us as we look to resolve to discipline ourselves in these three ways on the back of our notebooks. Um, and his resolutions start with a preface that he wrote. I'm going to read it to you. He says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So um, his 70 resolutions can kind of be summed up into 10 categories. I'm going to read the 10 categories to you, not the 70 resolutions. Um, the first one, to live for God's glory, to make the most of this life in terms of eternal impact, to take sin seriously, to become theologically astute, to be humble, to exhibit self-control in all things, to always speak with grace and truth, to constantly develop an eternal focus, to be a faithful Christian, and to daily pursue a fervent love for Christ. So his resolutions were not just temporal lifestyle adjustments, like exercising more, um, but they were earnest spiritual decisions made for the purpose of combating sin and for living a God-glorifying life. But even more so, his resolutions did not and could not rely solely on his own willpower, right? waking up and exercising every morning kind of relies on a lot of willpower. They did require tremendous amounts of self-discipline to com complete his resolutions, and he knew it would be a lot of hard work, but he also knew he needed to rely on God's grace to help him accomplish what in essence is humanly impossible. Same with these. Um, so we should approach our three disciplines with that same understanding, right? We are 
unable to discipline ourselves without God's help, which is why we must beg him to help us to be disciplined, because what we're aiming at is God's glory. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So as we go through this wellspring year and learn about um, how to train ourselves with these three disciplines, we have to keep that eternal perspective, right? So let's read our disciplines together. Go ahead and turn your notebooks over. Discipline one is the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God, through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So if we made discipline one into a resolution, it might sound something like, I resolve to be faithful, to shepherd my heart with the word of God and the gospel. All right, discipline two, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. So if we change this into a resolution like Jonathan Edwards, it might sound like, I resolve to be faithfully concerned for those in my home and to minister to them with my heart fixed on God and his word. All right, and our discipline three, with her heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So again, if we made discipline three into a resolution, it could sound like, I resolve to keep my heart fixed on God, to keep my home a priority, and to step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. But we always have to remind ourselves of what Edward said at the beginning of his resolutions. I'm going to read that again. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. So as we train ourselves, like we read in 1 Timothy, we need to keep that in mind, that our faithfulness, our heart shepherding, our ministering to others, our shepherding others, it all has to start with God's word. Because Philippians 3, 7 and 8 says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's what we're working towards. That's our goal. And then also um, Philippians 2, 12 through 13 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So our three disciplines on the back of our notebooks require tremendous amounts of self-discipline, and they require hard work. They don't come easily. Nothing worthwhile ever does. But we also must have that perspective that without Christ, without him working in and through us, these disciplines are going to be impossible. And we will always fail when we try to accomplish them through our own strength. It's only through God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit that we're able to be faithful, like that key word that's in the back of all of our disciplines, or in the, our disciplines in the back of our notebooks. And the key to these disciplines is not merely making a resolution, right? We can make a resolution about anything, but it's full dependence on God, and that's only possible because of the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus became sin on our behalf. Jesus forgave our sins. He united us with Christ. He has raised us to newness of life, which includes the call to faithful, there's that word again, faithful, holy, diligent living for his glory, which he provides the strength for. So unless we rest in his grace and unless we walk in his power, we are doomed to discouragement and we are doomed to defeat. But when we are led by the Spirit, when we are prayerfully submitting ourselves to God's word 
then we can be confident that God is shaping us into the image of his son. And then we can be reflecting Christ in our hearts and in our homes and in our church and in the world. So let's pray again, and then Scott will come teach us. Heavenly Father, I do pray this morning that we are women who rely solely on you, knowing that any victory we have, any accomplishments that we can make, come solely through your power. God, we know that we cannot be women who shepherd our hearts, women who care for our homes, whether it's a spouse or children or grandchildren or roommates or whatever it may be. We cannot be women who step into the church and care well for the ladies around us and the children around us if we are not solely dependent on you, if we are not going to your word, if we are not begging you to lead us and to show us what your word has to say. Father, I pray that you make us women who put their whole dependence in you because you are the source of our strength. You are the source of, of any power that we have to accomplish anything in this world. Help us to not rely on our own strength or our own goodness, God, but it is solely on you. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. All right. That was really good. That was really good. I get to go after that. Um, before I start, I just want to thank you all for being here. Um, and that's not a light, empty phrase. Um, this church actually grows into greater usefulness for the Lord and actually grows in, in greater holiness because you're doing what you're doing this morning. Because you're here and you're, you're sitting down here and you're, you're listening to teaching and then you gather together in discussion groups afterwards and you're sharing what the Lord is doing uh, in your life uh, through the homework and other things that are going on. That's what makes Grace Bible Church a really strong church. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for taking the time. I'm sure you have other things you could do, but it's a blessing. And so it is my privilege to be here. Uh, this is one of my favorite days in the year, is to actually just sit and uh, teach in front of people that I don't get a chance to do this with very often. Um, and I really am thankful for this topic. Um, this is a topic that I've seen a lot of growth in my life in the last 10 or 15 years, and I wanted to share with you uh, some of what God has, has impressed upon my heart. Um, so... Uh, I'm thankful that we had the opportunity to pray. Let's, uh, let's do this. Let's uh, take out your, your notes, your uh, outline, and we'll walk through them. Today we're going to be looking at how you can honor God in your Bible reading. And these are, these are experiences and observations that I have. Um, they're not comprehensive. They're not exclusive in any way, but uh, I hope that they are a blessing. And that has been my prayer, is that this is a blessing to you guys as well. Uh, so... Uh, before we get started, I just want you to think about um, if you've ever had an opportunity or a situation in which your words were misconstrued or misunderstood. You spoke something and um, whether it was a friend or whether it was someone else in the church, someone in a position of authority, they misunderstood your words. And you said to yourself, uh, that is not the meaning of what I said. That is not at all what I said. Uh, you had a message and you consistently communicated it clearly with that message and your words were just misunderstood. Um, and sometimes the consequence of that can be pretty significant. Uh, somebody misunderstanding your words and taking your words not as they were intended, not as they were meant, not as they were spoken, uh, there can be some pretty significant consequences to those things. Um, if that's how we feel when people do that with our words, then we should be just as careful when we're handling God's words. Uh, he has an intent and he has a purpose when he communicates and we need to be very careful and how we receive what he communicates. So today we're going to look at how we can honor the Lord when our Bibles are open and we are alone with God. But one of the most important steps we can take and part of doing that is to prepare our hearts for the intake of the word. One of the biggest risks in uh, reading God's word is having a heart that's not properly prepared to actually receive the divine truth that comes when you read the Bible. So heart preparation is essential because only a soft and tender heart uh, is sensitive to Scripture's authority over our lives. So we're going to spend some time first talking about how you can prepare your heart um, and why it's so essential to do this. And uh, this involves prayer. Um, 
one of the things I hope is to take away from our, our time together this morning is we understand that any meaningful interaction with God over his word does require prayer on your part. Prayer on the front end and prayer on the back end as well. Uh, one of the things that's really good to do uh, in prayer before you start reading your Bible is to agree with God about his nature. Uh, scripture is God's revelation of himself to us. So do some work to remind yourself of the kind of God that Scripture is revealing. Whether you're starting your day or you're ending your day with your Bible reading or you're somewhere in the middle of your day and you've got a space and a good opportunity to do that, remind yourself of God's holiness. Uh, the passage that I use that's very helpful for me is Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And it's a great passage. It's the throne room of heaven. And what you have here is uh, the holiness of God being his singular defining characteristic. If there's one word you use to describe God more than any other thing that's more comprehensive than any other thing, it is his holiness. And what you have here are four living creatures that are gathered around the throne. And these are highly perceptive, highly intelligent, not compromised by sin in any way whatsoever. And they don't have any sin nature whatsoever in the same way that we do. Uh, and this is what they say. Uh, John is writing, and he said, The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes all around and within, day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So what they say is, Holy, holy, holy. The repetition here tells us that they're adding emphasis. They're stating that there is no way in which God could be any more holy than he already is. He's not lacking in any way. He's separate from us. He's separate in his moral purity and in his being and in his power, his wisdom, his vengeance, his mercy, his kindness. The list goes on and on. So set aside some good time just to remind yourself that that is who you are interacting with when you read your Bible. So pray, Father, you are so set apart from me. You are so different from me. I have no hope of grasping your word on my own strength and in and of my own strength. I desperately need your help in understanding and comprehending and coming to grips with the truth that I'm going to be reading. Your revelation of yourself. So getting a good handle on God's holiness is really, really helpful. And you can go on and on with things that you can remind yourself of. But one other thing that's really helpful to remind yourself of is God's glory. And this is something that we've shared and build all the time. This is something that I'm sure you ladies discuss from time to time as well. Um, holiness of God and then followed by God's glory. God's glory deals with his weightiness and his impressiveness. The idea of God's glory is that God is substantial and weighty and very, very impressive. Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The words I'm going to read are revealing a God whose nature is weighty. It is not a trifling thing to sit there and read my Bible. So God grant me the appropriate sobriety as I read my Bible that I can be able to comprehend just how weighty and impressive you are. So it's good to remind yourself about um, God's nature and, and who God is. And it's really good to remind yourself about the word itself. Agree with God about his word and agree with God about the benefit that his word brings to you as you read it. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is John 17, 17. I have a hard time even holding it together when I, I remember this passage. Jesus is praying with his disciples. He knows his, his time on the earth is coming to a close, and he's praying with them. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In very short order, the disciples are going to begin the, the process and the task of establishing the church without Jesus. And they need sanctified lives to do that. And Jesus is telling us in his own words how it is that we become sanctified. We become sanctified with the reading and through the reading of his word. Sometimes I pray and I say, Father, your son is telling me that there is one and only one source 
of sanctification, and that is your word. I want to lead a life that is marked by ongoing progressive sanctification, then I need to be in this word. So please use this word to sanctify me. Very important to remember that you're, you're dealing with a divinely inspired document, the only divinely inspired document, and it has power to, to sanctify your life. But when I read my Bible, I, I need to remember that my Bible also tells me a lot of things about myself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is four things. It's living, it's active, it's sharp, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of my heart. Context here in Hebrews 4 is the Jews that are unable to enter God's rest due to disobedience and unbelief. Old Testament Jews. The message for us is that Scripture will reveal our true condition to us when we read it. It's an accurate measure of the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. So pray, Lord, please use your word to reveal to me the true condition that I'm in, the true condition of my mind and my heart. Sometimes we can kid ourselves. We're not very discerning about ourselves. We're not very observant of ourselves, and we need God's word to help us be that way. So... Lord, show me where I have fondness for the things of this world that I can't recognize. Show me where I have weak affections for you that I don't really notice. Show me where I believe the lies of the enemy, just kind of passively and not really notice that either. So it's really good to talk to God about his word and just agree with him about what it is that you're actually reading. And then it's really good to agree with God about who you are. And it's really good to remember your former condition. We're going to look at your former condition and your current condition. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 is just so very helpful to remind us of who we were. Paul says in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked. You formerly walked. It was a very active deadness. It was a spiritual deadness, but it was very, very active. And you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. It is so helpful to understand uh, these things. One of the most effective ways to prepare your heart to interact with God's word is to remind yourself of who you used to be before God. Agree with him about the spiritually unresponsive condition you were in, your active walk of life that looked just like the rest of the world. Whether your conversion occurred as a young child or later on in young adulthood or later into adulthood, just agree with God that your ongoing desire at that time was to indulge yourself in every desire that you had to live under your own self-rule, and that you had no interest in responding to God's holy, precious word. It's really, really helpful to remind yourself of that as who you used to be. And the reason why you remind yourself of who you used to be is because that is not who you are today. Not who you are. I forgot to bring my, my blue pamphlet. You guys do the blue pamphlet every year, right? The, God's transformation of man, you have the dark color over here and you have the yellow color over here and in the middle section of the pamphlet, that's where we all are today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we are all, you guys know this as well as I do, you are all right in the middle here in this yellow section and we are moving left to right, becoming more and more sanctified. It's really good to remember um, the kind of person that we are today. Galatians 5.17, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another. They are, present tense verb, so that you may not do the things that you please. My flesh, the residual sin that still lurks within the Christian, is opposed to the things that the Holy Spirit is working for in my life. That is the condition of me. One part of me is actually in opposition to the other today. That was true for me as I was driving over here. It's true for every believer. There is a battle that is taking place inside of me. So it's very important, it's imperative that I fill my mind with the truth of Scripture 
so that I'm equipped to fight that battle well. It's important to remember in your current condition that you are no longer a slave to sin. Romans 6, 4, I love this. This is my favorite verse in Romans 6. Romans 6 talks about a believer's new relationship to sin, and the takeaway is that you are no longer a slave to your sin. But Verse 4 says, We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we can walk in newness of life. The Christian has a new relationship to sin. Christ's resurrection from the dead conquered death and the sin that was the cause of that death. It's because of that that I have the ability to walk in newness of life. So sin no longer has the position over me that it used to. It no longer is my master. It's present, but it's not the master over me that it once was. I have the ability to walk in newness of life. <clears throat> There's something that I, I didn't put down and include in the notes here. And, and what I want to do is, I think each of you is the farthest over here on my right. There's a sheet of paper over there on the left. and Just grab that and, and take a glance at it and, and pass it to the right. It's very important that we understand how it was that we got into our current condition through the work of Christ on our, on our behalf at the cross. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, um, 5.21 tells us that God took him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 talk about Jesus being the propitiation for our sin. Something that's really sobering for me that helps me prepare my heart for my time alone with the Lord is to remember to try to get some kind of sense of the volume and the quantity and the mass of all of my sin. Um, something that's really sobering to me is that I'm 56 years old, and if I have spent uh, 56 years living in sin, I've probably thrown up against God one sin every six minutes, probably ten sins an hour on a good day. And um, if you add all of that together, that's more than five million offenses against my God. And if you ask me to take a sheet of paper and a pencil that had an infinite supply of lead and try to write down and, and agree with God about everything that I've done, I could probably write down maybe 50 things that I did. If I remember the, the, concept, the, the context and the time and the occasion and the passage that I, I violated, I can probably remember one one-thousandth of one percent of all of my sin against the Lord. And yet Jesus was the propitiation for all of my sin. And it's just really sobering for me to remember that I don't begin to grasp the, not even the, the, the magnitude of it, but the number of times that I've offended God with my life. This sheet here that I passed is, is a picture of a solar flare that um, was taken in 2013. The little solar flare, the spout that you saw coming off the surface of the sun, is 120,000 miles in its length and its size. And that just helps me understand God's power and his might and his authority. It helps me understand what Jesus actually endured on the cross. And he brought it to an end. An end that would take me an eternity to satisfy. So it's really, really helpful just to get a good picture of the, the scope and the size of our sin against the Lord. And that it's greater than we can ever grasp and understand. And that humbles us when we get ready to read our Bibles. And so lastly, when you're um, agreeing with God about his word, agree with him about the purpose for reading your Bible. And this is one of the most important things I hope you take away from this, that first and foremost, when you sit down to read your Bible, you are there to read your Bible to bring glory to God. Philippians 1, 9, and 11, 9 through 11. Paul has a long list of things that he's praying for for the church in Philippi. He prays that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He prays that they may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And that they might do that, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. I want us to put our eyes on the very end of this passage. To the glory and praise of God. We're to have love that abounds in knowledge and discernment. We're to approve things that are excellent. We're to be sincere and blameless. We're to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. But all of it is to aim at the, the praise and the glory of God. Our love, our approvals, our blamelessness, our righteous fruits are to aim at the glory of God. So the overarching purpose of our lives is that we bring praise and glory to the Lord. So grant me your grace in my reading of Scripture, a reading that informs me as to what is right and good, 
that I do this first and foremost to your glory. Uh, these next things that I'm going to list are really, really good things to do when you're reading your Bible to keep in mind and really good aims to have, but they're not the ultimate aim. My ultimate objective is not to grow in my skill and ability with the Word. My ultimate objective is not to become a better wife or friend or mother by reading my Bible, even though that's really, really good. My ultimate objective is not to build a better defense for the doctrines of grace. It's not to refine my eschatology and my understanding of the end times. It's not to understand a better understanding of the timeline of the Old Testament. It's none of those things. When I read my Bible, my primary aim is to bring you glory as I read it. And the way that I bring you glory as I read your word is to use self-control when I read your word. By reading your word as you intended it to be read, by, by reading the words with the meaning that you intended when you gave them to us. So God, give me your grace to do that. All of those other things are excellent to have. They're excellent benefits, but they're secondary to bringing God glory. When you sit down with your Bible open, you sit down for the purpose of giving him glory. We also want to be pleasing to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.9 uh, The first one of these, giving God glory, points to God. This passage helps us understand what our responsibility is in this. Um, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. The Christian is to be pleasing to God in all that he does. And so, Lord, I want to be pleasing to you as I read my Bible. My disposition while I'm reading my Bible is very, very important. So it's not just how I read my Bible um, after, it's not just how I respond to reading my Bible after reading it that has bearing on what kind of sheep I am. It's how I read it while I'm reading it that has bearing on what kind of sheep I am. And uh, the aim of every believer should be to be a humble sheep under Christ's shepherding. The Lord here in, in verse 9 is Christ, and we want to be humble under his shepherding care, especially when we're reading our Bibles. And there's two words that I try to keep in mind when I read my Bible. Uh, you might want to jot these down. One word is dwell, and the other word is swell. Um, may I not dwell on the sins of others when I'm reading your word and I come across a passage that points out somebody else's sin? May I not do that. And may I not swell with pride if I'm reading your Bible and I come across a passage that reveals an area of recent growth in my life or uh, a particular part of theology that I now understand better from reading your word. May I not dwell on the sins of others and may I not swell with my own pride. May I be a humble sheep under my, my Savior as I read. So all of that is, is what I find to be helpful for me as I prepare my heart to read God's Word. And it takes time. There's no getting around. It's going to take time to remember those things about who God is. But it is absolutely worth it because it makes it your time and when you're actually reading God's Word that much more fruitful and, expect, and um, effective. So take some time to prepare your heart. These are some thoughts and some ideas that I have for how it works for me. If something else works well for you, praise God. Keep doing that. But these are things that I found to be very helpful. So we're going to look at several different things that we want to do, eight different ways that can help us to use self-control when we're reading our Bibles. And the first is we're in a passage, you're sitting there reading, and you want to make sure that you expect to find a single meaning in that passage. So many uh, of you have had kids, maybe it was a long time ago, maybe it was recently, maybe it's currently. Uh, when was the last time you're communicating with your kids so as not to be understood? When was the last time you intended two equally valid meanings with the same words? So let's say you've got your kids in front of you and you give them all the same clear instruction. You've got your three kids, your four kids. Would you consider it reasonable for each one of your kids to come to their own conclusion as to what it is that you meant when you were speaking? There's one meaning that you intended. And the, the error really wasn't on you and on your words. It was on the understanding of those words and the interpretation of those words. So the same thing happens to the church. Uh, you know, you have a, a household that wouldn't function very well at all. When are we getting in the car? Where are we going? Why are we going there? The same thing happens to the church when we do that with God's word. When we sit down with God's word and we think, oh, this, this has several meanings. It, it means this for me and 
it means that for my friend. That actually ends up being very, very, very harmful to us personally as well as to the church corporately. Language is God's gift to us. God gave language to us to enable clear communication with one another. Clear communication is with a singular meaning as part of God's holy character. So clear communication flows out of God's holy character. We can see that in many, many places in Scripture, and just one of them is Isaiah 45, verses 18 and 19. Thus says the Lord, and he describes what he has done. He describes his characteristics and his qualifications, and he says, I am Yahweh, and there is no one else. And then in verse 19, he tells us, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a wasteland. Here at the very end, I, Yahweh, speak righteousness, declaring the things that are right. God's declaring to Israel that, that he and he alone is God and that there is no one else like him. And the one thing that sets apart God from every other one is his communication. We see it at the end of, of verse 19. He speaks righteousness. If what we're speaking is righteous, it is right. It is perfect. It is without error. It's without omission. It's without compromise. And one characteristic of righteous speech is that it is clear. Righteous speech in no way is confusing or vague or uncertain. It's absolutely clear. There's nothing missing. There's not confusing. God is saying there's none of that in my speech when I communicate to you through my word. What we need to say is that clear communication today flows out of God's holy character. Because God is holy, his communication is clear. So he has one meaning. And that's really important because clear communication is essential for obedience. And one of the passages that, that makes this so clear is Deuteronomy 29, 29. A lot of times when you hear that passage, the focus of attention is on the very front of that verse. Oh, there's these secret things and they belong to the Lord. And that is absolutely true. But our point here is at the end of the verse. God is speaking to Israel. It's the second giving of the law. It's towards the end of that second giving of the law. And he says, the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. This is Israel, comma, so that we may follow all the words of this law. Oftentimes people focus on the front end of the verse, but our focus here is at the end. Look at what's taking place at the end of this verse. The things revealed belong to us so that we may follow them. God communicated his law to Israel and he expected Israel to obey him. He didn't communicate with the expectation that they wouldn't obey him. He expected that they would. The expectation he put on Israel to obey his law demanded that his communication of that law be clear. The reason God can expect obedience from us is that the meaning of the words that he uses to give his commands to us is clear. So when you're reading a passage in your Bible, use self-control and remember that the passage has one and only one meaning. When you're reading your Bible, it's also important that we hold fast to the normal use of words when we're reading our Bible. And we like to say, keep three words in mind when you're reading your Bible. And those words are literal, grammatical, and historical. First, the literal. Take the words at their literal meaning as often as you can. We use words a lot. We know when words are being used literally and when they're not. Same thing is true when we're reading. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word existed in the beginning, the Word existed together with God, and the Word was God. Literal meaning. The Word transcends time, the Word is distinct in some way from God, and the Word has identity with God. God is identifying himself as a communicating God by virtue of his name. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. Just think about the normal meaning of the word. The normal reading of this leads us to conclude that the word took on human flesh and lived on this earth with humankind. Sometimes scripture uses metaphors. A metaphor is a figure of speech that refers directly to one thing by mentioning another thing. And when metaphors are used, it is still helpful to use the literal meaning 
of the, the metaphor to guide your interpretation. In John 10, Jesus is, is referring to himself as a door in verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Here Jesus is describing himself by mentioning a door. But the literal meaning of a door helps us understand that Jesus is the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. So use the literal interpretation of words as often as you can. Take the words to have their literal meaning as often as you can. And we want to make sure that we use good grammar when we're reading our Bibles to help you understand what's being said. And sometimes recognizing where the commas are and where the semicolons are and where the periods are is really helpful. And you don't have to be a grammar pro to, to read your Bible. But one of the examples here is a, a sentence that's a little longer. It's Ephesians 4, verses 14 to 16. We mention this in my small group quite often. We're going to look at verse 14. Paul says, we are no longer to be children. And then he describes what kind of children we are no longer to be. We're no longer to be the ones who are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and so forth. So the thrust of verse 14 is that we're no longer to be children. The rest of verse 14 tells us how we're no longer to be children. Verse 15 tells us what we're to do instead. But, and, and the word but tells us that, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is Christ. We do that, we, we um, avoid becoming children by speaking the truth in love. So the thrust of verse 15 describes what we are to be, children who grow up in all aspects into God. We do that by speaking the truth. And verse 16 tells us about the function of the whole body. And if you look at the beginning of the verse, you see from whom the whole body. That's the subject. And then you see a comma, and you see lots and lots of words that describe something. And what those words do is they describe the function of the body. But you actually see the verb that the, the body is going to be acting towards the end of the verse. It says the whole body, all those other words, and then it says causes the growth of the body. So the body causes the growth of the body. And how does it do that? It does that with the words that are in between. It does that by being fitted and held together what, by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. So it's a long sentence, got lots of commas and a period at the end and some semicolons and things, but it tells us what we can understand when we just use good grammar to read our Bibles. We also need to make sure we're thinking historically when we read. The Bible was written by more than 30 authors over a span of 1,500 years. So something that was written 1,500 years before some other part of the Bible is going to sound different. So there's some good questions we can ask ourselves. What do you know about the author of that book? What do you know about the audience? What do you know about the setting? When did that take place? And this is where a really good timeline section in a good study Bible can help you. It's really helpful just to look at it and say, where does it sit? For example... I think we're all somewhat familiar, pretty familiar with the book of Jonah. If you know that Jonah took place during a time of relative prosperity in the northern kingdom of Israel, after the kingdoms were divided, it's in the northern kingdom, and it's a time of prosperity that was following a lengthy time of oppression by the Assyrians, you can understand why Jonah was not excited to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel to those people of Assyria. It's just very, very helpful to just know some basic things about that. So that's really good. So read your Bible literally when you can. Use good grammar. Use the grammar that's there for you. And think historically. One of the most important things to do when you're reading your Bible is to make observations of your Bible. That's our third point. Observe your passage before you interpret it. So often we run ahead and we try to interpret a passage before we actually look at what's there and get a good, complete grasp on what's there. The more observations you make on a passage, the easier it is to arrive at a meaning. And the more of the observations you make, the more you can understand what's actually there. So look at the placement of the book in your Bible. What kind of genre is this? Am I reading the law? Am I reading wisdom? Am I reading prophecy? Am I reading the Gospels? Am I reading the story of the church in Acts? Am I reading a letter to a church? 
Am I reading a letter to a pastor like Timothy? All of these things are going to be different, but they're going to help you understand. And look at the pieces of the passage or the book that you're reading. Ask yourself, there's a flow here. Just like if you were writing a letter, there'd be a flow in your letter. What was the point in the passage before I was reading right now? Who's speaking? Who's the intended audience? Is there a list here? Why is that list there? What is the list of? What words or phrases seem to be important? Are there transition words like but and therefore and so that? Whenever you see the word so that, it's really important. It's almost like you should put those in boldface in your Bible because they, they tie what is being said at the front before that to what is coming after that. So it helps you understand cause and effect or requirements that are on us. So it's really, really helpful just to, to look at observations and make as many observations as you can when you're reading your, your Bible. And start by making the observations right here in a passage and stay in the passage as long as you can. Try to avoid saying, oh, that's like that one verse that I found that's way over at the other end of my Bible. Uh, remember the context. It's really helpful to understand the meaning if you're staying within the context of the author. And once you get a good grip on that, then you can expand outward from there. Then we want to make sure we understand the difference between interpretation and application. They're both really, really important. But strive to be comfortable in your interpretation before you run after an application. So know the meaning before you run after the application. But interpretation and application are like two runners in a relay. You know, you've got the baton. The one runs, interpretation runs, and then he hands off the baton to application, and interpretation stops running, and application starts running. Application builds on the established meaning that's provided by the interpretation. So in an interpretation, it's important to understand that there is one interpretation. There is one. There is only one meaning in the passage. But there are many, many applications depending on who is reading it, when it is being read, the context, the circumstances of the one reading it. They're both important, they're both needed when you meet with the Lord over his word, but establish the one before you, you run after the other. Don't obtain an accurate interpretation only to quit there and not apply it to your life. But by the same token, don't run to the application before understanding the interpretation that motivates your application. You'll miss the mark if you do. So those things are, are really, really helpful. You know, you're reading along and you're thinking, oh, this is my Bible, this is great. I know what that means. I know what I need to go do right now or tomorrow or, or next week. Make sure you understand the meaning first so that you don't misapply it. Something that's really, really helpful when you read your Bible is that you entrust yourself to God's wisdom. We need to grow and grow and grow in our ability to do this, and we want to do that by remembering that his wisdom is above our own. Isaiah 55, verse 8 God says to Israel, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. You need to remember that God is the one who declares. He is the one who decides what is good and what is right. And so we need to make sure that we're careful not to let our emotions rule when we're reading our Bible. Let God's word and the authority of God's word guide and put a boundary around our emotions. Because it's not our place to say, well, what I just read might be okay for some people, but that doesn't work for me. Because my situation is different, or my situation is hard. And actually, my situation is really hard. Instead, we need to agree that God's ways are higher than ours. Just think of God's wisdom in salvation. Which of us would design salvation the way God did? We would never think of a design for salvation in which we are dependent on God's mercy and God's grace to save us. Every one of us, if we were thinking up a way of saving ourselves, would think of what we can do. And that's not the recipe to save somebody. God has a, a better design to save. So if we trust ourselves to God's design in salvation, shouldn't we trust ourselves to God's wisdom in every other page of Scripture? Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2, this is so helpful. This just puts us in our place when we read God's word. 
God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? Where, there is, a, where is there a place that I may rest? Verse 2, my hand made all these things. All these things came into being by me, declares Yahweh. But to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Who does God look to? He looks to the one who is quick to tremble at God's word and submit to the wisdom that comes through the reading of his word, not in our own wisdom. And that is hard. That is really, really, really hard because some of our circumstances are really challenging. But God is faithful and he is true and we can trust his wisdom above our own. That leads us to our next point and that is that God's word is actually sufficient. Trust in the sufficiency of God's word. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us not some things, but everything that pertains to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And where has he given us that? He's given us that through the true knowledge of him. Where do we find God? And the true knowledge of God, we find it in his revelation of himself in his word. We can have confidence in scripture that it is sufficient to give us everything to lead a life that is pleasing to him. If you need help repenting from sin, reconciling a friendship, or growing in your affections for God, don't look first and foremost somewhere else. Instead, recognize that God is giving you the wisdom you need to do those things right there in his word. This doesn't mean you shouldn't be reading good books. You should be reading lots of other good books. God provided godly men and women, authors, to, to teach us and instruct us. But make sure, make sure that that book places Scripture and the authority of Scripture above every other thing. All right. It's important that we also use read the full counsel of Scripture. You ever notice how big your Old Testament is? Ever noticed how much of your Old Testament is dedicated to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel? It's a lot. And God preserved it. He put it in the canon of Scripture so that it would benefit us as well. Paul writes to Timothy. He's helping Timothy understand how he needs to lead the church in Ephesus. And he says uh, in verses uh, 10 through 17 of chapter 3, You followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions and sufferings. All of these that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. So Paul is telling Timothy, you followed my teaching. You understood my teaching. Then he goes on and he says in verse 14, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And in verse 15, he says, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ. Paul is counseling Timothy regarding the threats that exist for the church in Ephesus. And what he'll give Timothy the fortitude and the stability in the midst of all of these trials is God's word. But it's important to understand how much of God's word he's referring to Verses 1 through 9, Paul is predicting that difficult times are coming for Timothy. In verse 10, Paul is teaching Timothy, and much of that was Paul's first letter to teaching Timothy, his first letter to Timothy. But he also tells him in verse 14 to continue in the things you have learned and convinced of, things that Timothy learned from Paul. And then in verse 15, he speaks of the sacred writings the Old Testament writings that Timothy was fortunate and blessed enough to be brought up under. And so when he says in verse 16, the verse that we're so familiar, all scripture, Paul absolutely meant everything that Timothy was raised with in the Old Testament, but it also included what, what he had taught Timothy and what he had written to Timothy. Paul absolutely considered his own writings to be part of scripture. And so his own writings were placed right alongside. He says all scripture is inspired by God. Every single page of it, we can read all the different books of the Old Testament and benefit and grow from them. And that's why he says that um, a person is completely equipped in verse 16. 
when they read his scripture. I really like this where Paul says, it is useful and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting and training. The way I like to think about that is teaching is what is right. Reproof is what is not right. Correction is how to get right. And training is how to stay right. All of scripture is useful for those four things. Absolutely. Teaching what is right. Reproof what is not right. Correction how to get right. And training how to stay right. And God gave us every single page of scripture for those things. So whether you're at the end of Genesis or at the third chapter of Hosea or the ninth chapter of Luke, or the 11th chapter of Revelation, uh, you will find those things. Scripture will bring those things to you. The last thing I want to put in front of us, one of the hardest things when you've got a reading plan is um, to stay with a reading plan, but they're, they're a benefit. One of the best ways to read all of Scripture is to find a good reading plan. There are many, many ones that are published, I like the Discipleship Journal reading plan in part because um, it takes you through the entire scripture in one year and it's got four different threads. It's got an Old Testament thread left to right. It's got the Old Testament wisdom which is Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Songs and, and those. It's got the Gospels for the third thread. You're in the Gospels all year long so you see Christ uh, from January 1 to, to December 31st you're seeing Christ on display. And then it's got the letters of the New Testament, left to right, starting with the generation of the church in Acts. So you're in four different places at the whole time. And I really like it because it's got a few days at the end of the month for you to get caught up. It's really, really helpful. But it takes you through Scripture. But there are many, many other good plans. There's, there's the McShane plan. There's the chronological plan. There's tons of other really good plans. If you want to brew your own plan, brew your own plan. <laughs> brew your coffee. Brew your reading plan. Because you know your own situation better than anybody else does. Hey, I like to read more slowly, but make sure it covers the full counsel of God's word and stick to it. It's really, really helpful. But whatever your reading plan is, eventually you're going to come across a genealogy or two. doesn't take you very long to get to a genealogy in Genesis, does it? You're thinking, oh, you know, I've got four chapters of genealogies. Or you get to Chronicles. I've got, what is it, eight, nine chapters of genealogies. This is really important. We've got to remember that God's wisdom was to include these things in the canon of Scripture. And there's really, really good reasons for this. I'm going to start with uh, the genealogy of Jesus. There are two of them. One is in Matthew, and the other one is in Luke. We know where the one is in Matthew. It's in chapter 1. And it just starts, and he goes right ahead. And he describes things. And we want to know some things about the genealogies. One is that Matthew's genealogy moves forward in time. Matthew's genealogy starts forward. It goes from Abraham to Jesus. And his audience is Jewish. And there's a reason why Matthew is moving left to right in time. That's because his audience is Jewish. And his purpose is to show that Jesus has the legal credentials to be the Messiah. In Israel, legal rights were carried down from one generation to the next through the father. So Matthew starts with Abraham and he goes through David and he gets to Joseph. And we notice in verse 16 of Matthew, that, uh, or sorry, verse 6, that Joseph's family line runs through David via his son Solomon. So that's really helpful. And it's not important and it's not imperative that we memorize every name and know the order and everything, but there's some really good observations we can make. Matthew 1.16, Joseph's father was named Jacob. And that's really important to remember. But, it, but more important than anything else is that Matthew's writing to help them understand how Jesus has the credentials to be the Messiah. But also in Jewish law, one can only sit on the throne if he has the blood right if he's a blood descendant of the king. So then you switch over to Luke's genealogy, and Luke's genealogy goes backwards. It goes backwards, starting with Jesus, and it moves backwards and backwards and backwards, and gets to David 
through his son Nathan. And so Luke is showing us that Jesus has the blood credentials as well to sit on the throne through Mary. But he's telling us at the same time through Matthew that he has the legal credentials because he's a descendant of David through men, through Solomon. So Mary's ancestor and Joseph's ancestor were brothers. And it's just really important to recognize that when we read these, these genealogies. They show us different pictures of who Christ is. And sometimes the takeaway is not the actual names and the ordering of the names, but what they're telling us as we step back and, and look at a bigger picture. The other genealogy that I find is really helpful just to bear in mind, especially when you're in a reading plan, is the one in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 through 8. There are eight chapters of genealogy. And you think, wow, that's a lot for me to be reading. That's a lot of names. That's a lot of tribes. And I'm wondering, I get kind of lost in everything in there. It's really important to remember that the kings, the first and second kings were written before the exile. First and second chronicles were written after the exile. And first and second chronicles only relate to Judah. They have the the whole genealogy, but the story is about the kings of Judah. So when we read our genealogies in, in First Chronicles, God is saying, even though I just exiled you for 70 years into Babylon, you are still my people. And I want you to understand that I will bring you a redeemer, and he is coming through the family line of your father, David. Most of the people who returned after the exile were never there in the first place before they left. He wanted them to understand the truth of who they were, that God was faithful to his command. They had to have a very clear picture of what these tribes were because they had just spent their whole lives in a foreign place. That helps us understand God's affection for his people. I know you were in that foreign place, and that was part of my chastising of you. It was part of my, my growing you. But I'm going to give you what you need to believe that I am faithful to accomplish my word. So those are eight strategies that are very, very helpful. I think they're very, very helpful for us just to remember when we're reading our Bibles. And you can't do all of them every time, but make sure that some of those things are present on an ongoing basis. Some of you are, are moms of young kids. Your lives are full. You've got a full life. You've got a full house. You're busy. You're tired. And it takes time to meet with the Lord over his word. I would encourage you to sit down with your husband Look him in the eye and say, we need to design some kind of system in my week where I can meet with the Lord consistently. If you don't already have a consistent time, sit with your husband and ask him to help you and arrange with you ways and times where you can meet with the Lord because this is essential for you. The last thing we want to make you aware of is how important it is to counsel your heart after you read God's word. Two basic questions. I've been reading about God, been reading about his revelation of himself to me. One, how has my reading informed my thoughts towards God? How has my reading informed my thoughts towards God? Have I grown in my understanding of him, in his scope, in his power, his majesty, his holiness? Have I grown in those things? Do I see him putting that on display more clearly? So that's the first thing. Secondly, how has my reading of Scripture informed my obedience to God? You know that in the New Testament there are more than 1,100 instructions. A really good exercise is to start reading your New Testament after the genealogy that we just looked at and see how quickly it is before God gives an instruction. It doesn't take very long at all to find the first instruction. Then go to the end of your Bible and read backwards and find where the last instruction is. And there's 1,100 instructions in between. So there's an awful lot there for us to understand how it is that we need to inform our obedience to the Lord. Always take your reading back to your own heart. What does this mean for me? What do I need to do after you've arrived at the meaning of the passage? So, thanks for sitting with me this morning. It really was a joy to be here with you guys. Sorry about my voice. Let me close our time in prayer, okay?
Lord, I thank you for these women. I thank you for your goodness and your grace to bring them here today. I thank you for each and every home situation that is represented here. Lord, very different from one another, varied, but Lord, you are in each circumstance here. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for each one of these women, that today you would grab each one of us grace, Lord, that through the reading of your word we would live lives that are more pleasing and more honoring to you. Oh, Father, I pray for their time in discussion groups. I pray that you would bring forth good, concise, clear communication between one another. Lord, I pray that your word would be an encouragement. I pray that it would be a comfort. I pray that it would be an exhortation. Lord, so that we could be useful instruments in your hand. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us your Son as a Savior, that you reconciled us to yourself through your Son's blood. May we live under his Lordship today in a way that is pleasing to you and honoring to you. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.